Welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, March 15th. On today's show, we'll be talking to Teddy Schleifer about Russian-born venture capitalist Yuri Milner, who made billions of dollars as a Silicon Valley investor, thanks in part to his deep connections to Russia. So why is he curiously silent on what's happening in Ukraine right now? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Welcome, everybody, to The Powers That Be, the new daily version of The Powers That Be. Sleeker, faster, smarter. Joined by Teddy Schleifer uh, up in the Bay Area. Are you in San Francisco right now? I am. I'm at World Headquarters here, San Francisco. World HQ. Yeah, I'm at at the Venice uh, Bureau of Puck News. Teddy was in Los Angeles about a week ago, and I met him for coffee at Superba Food and Bread, which I recommend for anyone on the west side of LA. But he told me he was in town covering, quote, some rich person conference. (laughs) And I was like, that's a fun beat, because I used to go to Iowa, and you did too, and like go to like, Council Bluffs Chamber of Commerce dinner. Um, so that sounds nicer. Yes. I don't know if it was or not. I hope you had fun. I hope you got some good sourcing done. It is, uh, you know, just bounced. My, my life just bounced around, from, you know, Davos to uh, <laughs> mini Davos to mini, mini Davos. No, but there's the circuit of kind of investor world that we're going to talk about today. And they're all big fans of the powers that be. And congrats on now being daily. Thanks. I hope you can join more frequently. So, Teddy, I want to talk to you about a profile slash piece you wrote about a guy named Yuri Milner, who is Israeli but Russian-born, and in your telling, probably the most influential Russian tech investor in the Valley. According to your piece, there aren't any overt connections to Vladimir Putin and, and you know his doings lately. But can you tell us why you're curious about him at the moment? Because he does seem to have a history with powerful people in Russia. And does he maintain those relationships today? So the reason I'm interested in Yuri Milner right now is because there's a lot of unanimity from Western business toward Russia right now. You know, companies are racing, tripping over each other to give a a fiercer stiff arm to anybody that has any association with the motherland, as uh, Julia Yoffi would call it. Um, There are a few Russians who are Russian-born people, who have been, I mean, I guess this is a subjective statement, but conspicuously quiet. Yuri Milner was born in Russia. He's currently an Israeli citizen. He lives now in Palo Alto. And for people who don't know who he is, he's a first-name status kind of guy here. You know, Cheryl, Elon, Jack, Yuri. He's become sort of Silicon Valley royalty. He now hosts kind of this big philanthropy gala called the Breakthrough Prize. He is Mark Zuckerberg's friend. And he has been originally was backed by Kremlin money. In part, we're not saying that he was a a Russian plant, but it is an objective fact that some of the initial money came from the Kremlin. It came from a guy or was routed by a guy named Alisher Uzmanov, who I'm sure no one had heard of two weeks ago, but is now all over the news because he's on the EU sanctions list. He's one of the uh, famous yacht owners whose mm. yacht has been seized somewhere, I believe, in the Mediterranean. His crew was entirely fired. It's become this like, mini saga about the, the Ali Sher yacht, but we'll save that for another day. 
So you have this guy who is not, he's not just like a Russian guy who is an investor in tech companies and it happens to be Russian. He is someone who was originally backed by the Kremlin and by the Russian government. And, you know, if you're, you know anything about kind of the flow of capital under Russia, that doesn't happen by accident. It isn't just like Russian investors who are able to easily invest in the United States. So I'm not the one who is necessarily weirdly interested in the storyline. There's a lot of chatter right now in Silicon Valley about Yuri and what does Yuri think about this? Because you have someone who has some Kremlin ties or who has had Kremlin ties who isn't saying much about this at a time when so much of the Western business community is speaking rather loudly about the war. Sometimes when I'm doing this podcast and interviewing you and our other colleagues, I just open Google because I'm not on your beat and I don't know sometimes the references you make. And I went to Yuri's Twitter feed here and uh-huh. he tweets like every day. Most of it, the stuff is sort of like typical tech visionary stuff. And then it sure. went silent on February 21st and he hasn't tweeted since then. That's interesting. Well, that brings us to what he is saying. He is now speaking up a little bit more than he was earlier in the war. His foundation has made a number of gifts to support Ukrainian refugees. The statements, I would say, have been, I mean, these aren't coming from him, so let's get, there's already a, a bit of distance. I mean, he's not saying that the war is unjust or anything like that. He's basically saying that refugees are in need. He's supporting Jewish refugees in Ukraine. So he's donated a bunch of money to some causes. Mm-hmm. But look, there are people out there who would like to see him speak up much more loudly, in part because this is the whole premise or part of the premise of how the United States and the West are going after Putin right now has to do with using oligarchs' pressure against the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. Now, Yuri Milner is not, I don't think, would be considered a Russian oligarch himself, but I don't think the West is looking for just a vanity statement from Yuri saying this is wrong. I think the idea here is if Yuri spoke up, it could matter. Mm. So it's not a tweet to satisfy some like annoying reporters who are badgering him for comment. Mm -hmm. I think the idea would be that Yuri has relationships with Alisher Uzmanov. You know, Yuri has relationships with presumably other people in Russia, and he could be an American asset in this kind of economic war with Russia at a time when so many corporations who have less leverage maybe are speaking up, the question being asked in my circles is, where's Yuri? Yeah, you were right to describe him that way. I don't I don't think we need to be like overly sinister about this. It's not like the assumption here is that Putin has a Russian mole in Silicon Valley. It's, it's just more that this is an influential person in these circles who has deep connections to that country and is quiet about it. Um, you mentioned he came to wealth with links to the Kremlin. Can you just give a quick synopsis of DST Capital and and how he came to prominence in Silicon Valley? Sure. So Yuri Milner, I believe, starts making a lot of American investments through his firm DST Capital in 2008. And the the timing here is important because I think a more charitable version of events here is, look, 2008 was a very different time in U.S.-Russia relations. In fact, you know, a lot of the West, pre-Mitt Romney saying Russia was America's number one geopolitical foe, these economic relationships were encouraged explicitly. You know, the idea that we could have a kumbaya with the Russian oligarchs or the Russian corporate powers, that was an asset. That was seen as 
America spreading the joys and delights and riches of capitalism. So Yuri comes here in 2008 to start making investments. And he's sort of a nobody. He had founded a, a Russian internet company that was prominent, but was not, you know, he was not on the first name basis that he ends up being in 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an interesting story about why Yuri became so prominent. Basically, he made what was a landmark investment in Facebook. I think it was in 2009, 2010, sometime in that time frame that everybody thought was crazy. He basically paid an absurd amount of money. But Facebook obviously ended up being worth a certain amount of money. In 2011, just to give you a sense of kind of Yuri's mm-hmm. uh, celebrity here, he makes uh, what at a time was like the most expensive single family home purchase, I think it purchased ever, 25,000 square feet, 100 million bucks. It's like Yuri is just wildly successful overnight. It's a real American dream story. But over time, what happens is you get more successful, right? Is there suddenly tons of other investors who want to give you money? and by this point, he starts raising more and more money from more and more investments. And what that means is that the original Russian backers who backed him in 2008 suddenly looked like a pretty small numerator, a massive denominator. So Yuri's firm by 2012 is no longer raising money from any Russian LPs. Mm-hmm. I think there's no more money from Russian institutions since 2011. And if you total up all the money, according to DST, 97% of it comes from international institutions and private investors. So like DST is no longer like a, you know, a de facto mm-hmm. Russian sovereign wealth fund. It is indeed a successful multinational cosmopolitan firm. But initially that was not the story. The initial stake very much was Kremlin aligned. And, and look, to, to give your side of the story here, it's not the first time this has come up. Um, obviously, Peter, you're aware of the Facebook and Broglios that have Enveloped the company over the last five years. I am. And the Russian connection has been seductive to reporters. There was a big New York Times story in 2017. I think it was subject headline was like Kremlin cash behind early Facebook investments, which you know uh, <laughs> sent people ablaze. And, and Yuri's point was like, hey, look, I'm a Russian guy who is successful and I've made investments in American tech companies. But like he was borderline saying that the New York Times was being racist huh. or xenophobic. That like, hey, do you not want Russians to invest in American companies? Don't I have the right to find happiness on new shores? Uh-huh. So I guess the question comes down to, can someone have initial ties to the Kremlin and be just a normal investor? Or does that initial backing from Putin and Dmitry Medvedev and Alisher Osmanov, does that make you perpetually, inexorably, a Russian, capital R Russian, not lowercase R Russian, when you want to just make some money and enjoy capitalism. Yeah, that's also one of the swirling questions about Putin too. Where is his wealth from? What does he talk about with his oligarch buddies? The power elite in Russia is really shrouded in a lot of mystery. Anyway, Teddy, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into the wealthy Silicon Valley circles that Yuri Milner runs in. Welcome back, everyone. So, Teddy, before the break, you mentioned that Yuri Milner does a yearly event with Mark Zuckerberg, but who else is he close with up in the Valley? I know Yuri a little bit. I've met with him before. He's not as nefarious as, as people like to make him out to be. He's close with, you know, a lot of the powers that be in Silicon Valley. 
he is just a normal person. I mean, uh, to the extent that, that anyone here is normal. You know, he's very well regarded in sort of philanthropy circles. He's been very interested in life extension research hmm. and science funding in particular. This is not like Mohammed bin Salman here, <laughs> who is, you know, a persona non grata. This is someone who has very real relationships and has spent the last 10 years cultivating them. Hmm. Now, the question I'm wondering, just spinning this forward, is does this look any different in, in three or four years? Like I mentioned, you know, our friend MBS somewhat cheekily, but like, look, over the last five years, there's been a lot of conversation in tech about foreign money and whether or not it should be welcomed with open arms. Now, the problem for the, the goody two-shoes out here is people only care when there's a problem, right? Like when Mohammed bin Salman kills a dissident journalist in his country, mm -hmm. suddenly everyone's talking about Saudi money. I can tell you like no one has been talking about Saudi money in the last three years ever since that happened. Yeah, people care for a minute. And maybe now people care about Russian money and people care about Yuri. Are people going to care about Yuri in like two years mm -hmm. or in two months? Part of it depends on what he says. My, my prediction is that he's going to have to say something. I do not see kind of the speaking by check or the speaking by, you know, retweet lasting perpetually. He'll give an interview somewhere. I'm, 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 I feel yeah, like that's feel. sort of like what happens in these situations, at least with politicians, is you're curiously silent for a while. Then you arrange, you know, an interview where you can sort of speak out on your terms. Another link I just pulled up from the Jewish News Syndicate, Milner Foundation donates $3 million to assist Jewish right. refugees from Ukraine. So he's doing some good stuff here. Just to pivot real quick before we run out of time, I talked to Matt Bellany last week about what Hollywood is doing about the Russia-Ukraine situation, in some cases pulling film production or ceasing distribution of certain films there. Is there in the Silicon Valley slash tech slash philanthropy slash rich dude world that you live in. Um, what's catching your eye right now, just generally? I mean, are people steering a lot of money uh, over there to either help Ukraine or help refugees? What's the temperature of, of the valley right now? There's kind of two themes I'm thinking about right now. One is, one's going to make you optimistic, one's going to make you pessimistic. Let's start with the optimism, and then we can end on a real downer. Um, <laughs> there is, uh, as I mentioned, very little disagreement in kind of corporate America right now, or frankly, in American public opinion about uh, that this war is bad. And you're seeing companies uh, pull out on the daily. It's hard to argue there's a lot more that corporations or certainly private individuals can be doing. They're, people, they're donating a lot. They're doing everything they can. To some extent, this is a real rally around the flag moment for private philanthropists where it's like, hey, who cares if we disagree about Trump or about inflation or about Afghanistan or whatever. It's like, okay, everyone's on the same side that, you know, we should be supporting refugees. We should be donating to help people. And, you know, this is a humanitarian crisis. Now to make you feel horrible, um, <laughs> there's not that much that private individuals can do right now. This is going to be a crisis. There's going to be clearly long-term effects with refugees, with hunger, with just the future of Eastern Europe. And private Silicon Valley mockers and poobas can't turn back Putin's madness. There's obviously even limits to what Joe Biden can do. So it's not as if, you know, donors with Joe Biden's cell phone can call him up and say, do X, Y, and Z. And in some ways, for all the, uh, the hay we make out of the powers that be in Silicon Valley, I feel like there's almost a helplessness too. 
that wealthy individuals can be very united and can be very uh, taking almost inspiring actions that all just feel like, okay, you're just operating around the margins here. Like, yes, here's a way to clothe and feed and protect 1.5 million refugees. But like, who's to say there won't be millions more refugees tomorrow? I find myself thinking a lot right now about the futility of philanthropy. It's not anybody's fault, but geopolitics kind of supersedes it in a way that at least I'm thinking a lot about that right now. Yeah. I mean, that's a really smart point. And I hope you write something about this because the defining characteristic of wealthy tech universe over the last 10 years has been this idealistic futurism that is more powerful than government, that is more powerful than conventional politics. And what can innovation do about war other than make war worse, maybe? I mean, it's 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 a really fascinating conundrum that shows the limits of that kind of philosophy. Um, not that people shouldn't be donating as much as possible to help refugees, but the grind of state-on-state warfare is something that can't be solved by social networking or AI necessarily. So yes, it's an interesting problem. For the first time in a long time, tech is not saying I alone can fix it. Right. I mean, there's an element of, well, we're fucked. (laughs) Let's, let's, let's do what we can, but um, some forces are, are, are bigger than AI. All right, Teddy. Thanks so much, man. We'll talk soon. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 